I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, today it's Wednesday afternoon, about four o'clock East Coast time. I have the great pleasure of having on this program Dr. Elliot Cohen, who has joined CSIS as the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy. Of course, Dr. Cohen served as the ninth dean of Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And in addition to the many other things he's done in his career, Dr. Cohen, from 2007 to 2009, was Secretary Condoleezza Rice's senior advisor as counselor at the Department of State. Elliot, thank you for joining me today. I want to ask you, since the Russian invasion, the United States and our European allies have imposed notable costs on Russia, including cutting Russia off from the SWIFT system and sanctioning the Russian central bank. What does the strength of the Western response to the Russian invasion say about the ability of Western democracies to collectively push back on authoritarian threats from Russia and, and others going forward? Well, first, uh, Andrew, thanks for that uh, nice introduction and great to be part of the CSIS family. I think it's, you know, in that respect, it's quite a heartening story. There are a lot of sanctions in here that nobody would have anticipated, that what people would have said, well, that's too painful. Nord Stream 2, for example, the Germans deciding to suspend that. SWIFT, which was really viewed as the nuclear option, you can't be willing to do that. Not allowing Russian aircraft to over, essentially to overfly either Europe or the United States. And then there's, a, a, of course, targeted sanctions. I think one angle that people have missed in this is, is that there's a, a secondary wave of sanctions, which people are doing of their own accord. I think it was the Munich Symphony Orchestra fired their conductor, who's a Putin shill. And, you know, the result is this is turning Russia into a pariah state. You may hate them, you may despise them, you may fear them, but you want nothing to do with them, nothing. And Russia does view itself as being part of the civilized world. It views itself in some ways as being part of Europe and always has. And I think the psychological pressure here is enormous. I'm tremendously heartened by the degree of unity that has been shown by the European Union, uh, the way the United States and its allies have come together. I mean, we have to be clear, none of this is going to stop the Russians from doing horrific damage to Ukrainian cities, from slaughtering civilians, from brutalizing that population. It may not even bring Vladimir Putin down, although I think there's actually a good chance that it might. But it really is a remarkable, remarkable demonstration of the resilience of liberal democracies. And we should find that part heartening, even as we our hearts bleed for the people of Ukraine. Elliot, something that Madeleine Albright wrote about a week ago in an op-ed that she published in the New York Times st stood out to me. She said when she met with Putin that, you know, aside from being a small, pale and cold little man, she raised the issue of China with him. And he said, you know, something to the effect of you know, crudely, I like the Chinese eating with chopsticks is fun, but I'm really, you know, we're really Europeans. And now there's no way he can be a European with this. I think that's absolutely right. And it's, by the way, the sanctions will ultimately, I believe, have an impact on Sino-Russian relations because, you know, the Chinese have to be watching this and thinking, 
What about sort of secondary sanctions that could fall on Chinese companies that uh, try to deal with Russia? They have to be thinking that they're dealing with a partner, and it is Russia is a strategic partner of theirs, really the the main one, in some respects the only one, who's reckless and dangerous, and which is cutting itself off from the outside the outside world. So I think that's you know there again, I think sanctions will have quite a quite a powerful long-term effect without completely reversing the situation. At the end of the day, even Putin recognizes that Russia is definitely has a foot in Europe, let's put it that way. And I think so much, you know, Russian literature is Western literature. Rich Russian musical tradition is also part of the Western tradition. So this has to hurt a great deal. By the way, one long run thing is even once this crisis ends, and it might be years, and even once Putin is gone, whether it's next week or 10 years from now, this will do lasting damage, I believe, to Russia's relationship with the West. You know, until Russia has had decades and decades of decent governance, which I don't think anybody really anticipates, nobody will trust them because there'll always be the question of, yeah, Gorbachev was a nice guy, but eventually ended up with Putin. And how do we know that there won't be another Putin behind this one? And that'll be a burden for Russia to carry as well. Elliot, what have been some of the early surprises operationally, politically, and otherwise of the invasion? And what do these surprises say about the course of this war? So many surprises. Let's start with the personalities. You know, I was at uh, the Munich Security Conference just before the war, and then in Warsaw, actually just at the moment when the war broke out. And uh, particularly at Munich, talking to Europeans and Americans, I would say the majority opinion was either that there would not be a war or that Putin would be sort of adroitly, you know, maybe snip off another piece of the Donbass or something like that. And all that was rooted in a the judgment that Putin was a calculating sort of chess player. Now, I will say I didn't take that view because the alternative view, which I believe ended up being the correct one, is a view that's more informed by, uh, frankly, a study of Shakespeare than anything else. That is that you're dealing with a tyrant who's become more and more erratic the longer he's been in power, who is isolated, who feels his own age creeping up on him, and who is willing to, as the German chancellor said in 1914, to roll the iron dice. The fact that, that Putin is not a kind of a careful calculator, one big surprise in terms of personalities. The other one, obviously, is Vladimir Zelensky, a guy who is dismissed as a bit of a joke. He's a comedian, uh, young. I had very smart people who know that part of the world say, hey, listen, when the first bullet begins flying, he'll take off for his apartment in London. Well, it turns out he's actually an inspirational war leader, an extraordinarily brave and eloquent man. And if there's one thing we've been reminded of in all this, it's that leadership matters. The European reaction, particularly the German reaction, was a surprise, not just Nord Stream, their willingness to send arms into a hot conflict zone and then to announce that they're going to spend double the amount of their defense budget on rearmament, the degree of European unity, big, big surprise and a welcome one. In some ways, the biggest surprise is not the resistance of the Ukrainian people, because I think if you knew anything about Ukrainian history, you shouldn't have been too surprised by that. 
is the incompetence of the Russian military. I mean, this was a badly bungled operation. As we speak, it continues to be badly bungled. Again, let me say, they could kill an awful lot of civilians and, you know, while being mediocre or incompetent. And they have vast amounts of firepower at their disposal and they can level cities and they probably will. But at just about every step of the way, in terms of tactical competence, in terms of keeping their troops fed and supplied with fuel, in terms of the operational concepts that they're using, in, in terms of their ability to wage information warfare, in terms of their ability to employ air power, they've just been terrible. And, you know, if you follow the, the expert military discussion of the Russian, Russian performance, you see a lot of bafflement by people who've probably spent too much time looking at their technology and not enough looking at human beings who have to operate it. So I'd say for me, those are the really big surprises. There are, there are plenty of others as well. That is, to some extent, the nature of war. But I think it's also the nature of the, the images we carry in our own minds. So I'll just end, end with that, this one. You know, the response of the democracies has been extraordinary. The United States, under leadership, which I don't think anybody would consider particularly distinguished, did a brilliant job of keeping the alliance together and guided, stymied the Russians in their chosen domain of information warfare by releasing intelligence, by speaking the truth. The Europeans stepped up to the task. The Ukrainians decided they'd rather die than be enslaved to Moscow. And, you know, I think that the reason for that surprise is democratic pessimism. You know, we've, we've been through a hard 10, 15 or more years, and we've gotten used to being down on democracy and down on the values that this country and almost all the European states embody, uh, rule of law, commitment to the truth, and so forth. And we are being reminded on a daily basis by the power of those things. So that's most of these surprises not all of them, but most of them are good. That's the best one of all. It's fascinating analysis, Elliot. What steps do you think the Biden administration should be taking to support those who are fighting the Russian invasion? So I think the most important thing now is to give every possible assistance to the Ukrainians. And, you know, my, my basic uh, view would be whatever you're planning on doing, increase it by an order of magnitude. You know, we had a very interesting discussion the other day with Mike Vickers at CSIS, who had uh, been the mastermind of the insurgency against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. And he said, you know, they were, with, the United States was supplying arms and so forth to the insur insurgents for a while, but it was only when they really amped it up by an order of magnitude that there really began to be a decisive outcome. So I would say, you know, however many anti-aircraft missiles, stingers, anti-tank missiles, javelins you're supplying, sniper rifles, secure communications, intel, you, whatever it is, increase it by an order of magnitude. And the reason to do that is twofold. First and foremost, I think there's a moral imperative. You know, will the Ukrainians be able to defeat them on their own turf? Who knows? Probably not. But if people are willing to fight and die in defense of their country's freedom, we owe it to them to give them the best chance possible. I, I mean, I really do feel it's a moral obligation. But it's also a strategic imperative. Russia has to suffer for this. And if there is any prospect of the Russians disengaging, whether as a result of Putin being overthrown or for some other reason, it will only be if 
sadly, if the costs are intolerable to them. And the costs will only be intolerable if they are taking terrible losses on the battlefield. And Russia is sensitive to that. The pattern of Russian history is that when there's a protracted, unsuccessful, unpopular war, the regime is suddenly in trouble. That happened with Af the Afghan war, you know, it comes to an end and so does the Soviet Union. But there's precedents earlier on, the Russo-Japanese war, for example, which was a, an unsuccessful war, which very nearly brought the autocracy down and in any case did force major democratic reforms, including the convening of the Duma, the Russian parliament. You clearly think that Putin has miscalculated with his choice to invade in what ways could the invasion of Ukraine, even if the Russians do seize Kiev and Kharkiv and all this, be a strategic failure ultimately to Putin and Moscow? Oh, I would argue it's already been a strategic failure. So their their initial conception seems to have been that if they attacked simultaneously in a number of different directions, the Ukrainians would not resist. You'd be able to either capture Zelensky or kill him, but in any case, turf him out of power install a Quisling government of some sort and have a Ukraine that was subservient or indeed in some ways almost completely absorbed into what in effect would be Russian Empire 2.0. That was reflected a profound misjudgment of where the Ukrainian people were, a profound misjudgment of their own forces. And they have never recovered from that, you know, that fundamental mistake. If Vladimir Putin thought that there is any chance of bringing Ukraine into the fold, that is gone now. I mean, no matter what they do to the Ukrainians, there is no way that they will want to be anything other than part of the West. He has determined that Ukrainians, whether they speak Russian or Ukrainian or anything else, will hate Russia forever. And that is, that's strategic defeat. You know, he has done that. He, I believe one of his objectives has been to divide and weaken NATO. Just the reverse. And in fact, what I suspect he may get new members of NATO. A majority of the Finnish population has indicated that they would like to join NATO. Sweden has been talking about joining NATO. I think it's quite likely that before this is over, we'll have American forces deployed not on a rotating basis, but on a permanent basis to uh, Poland and the Baltic states. So a, a huge strategic defeat there. You know, and finally, he's, he's weakened the reputation of Russia as a formidable military power. And so much of what he has been able to do, and he has played a very weak hand very well. I mean, this is a country that has the GDP of Italy. So, so much of his ability to intimidate people has been this assumption that he's sitting on the top of this mighty war machine. He's not sitting on top of the mighty war machine. He has a lot of nuclear weapons, and he has a lot of firepower that you can pour out on cities, and that's about it. And by the way, on that point as well, he may, it is conceivable, I suppose, that he can terrorize uh, the popul population of Ukraine into acquiescence. But Really what happens in most urban warfare is you, you kill lots of civilians, you turn lots of things to rubble, and those are good fighting positions. And I think they'll have bitter, bitter fighting, which will exact a very heavy cost in Russian lives. 
as you know they try to blast their way into these ruined towns and and cities. So I I think this is going to go down in history as one of the most monumental strategic miscalculations and screw-ups of modern times. And people will be studying it in war colleges and graduate schools for a long time to come. Elliot, you know, nobody wants World War III, obviously. And we're trying to arm the Ukrainians as fast as we possibly can. And I hope that that is accelerating even faster. But what is to stop us, for instance, there's a 40-mile convoy that's backed up in Ukraine of Russian, you know, equipment and people. Why are we in NATO not flying in there and taking it out and helping where we can? You know, people have kept on calling that a convoy. It's not a convoy. Convoy is a group of vehicles that are being escorted somewhere. That's a traffic uh-huh. jam. And in, in fact, there's a lot of reporting now that up to 70% of their units are either running out of or have run out of food and fuel. I mean, and there are reports of Russian troops sabotaging their own vehicles. I mean, this is just a mess. Look, I mean, American air power, European air power is superior, but a, a direct attack by the United States or European powers on Russian forces would be war. It would be war with Russia. And, you know, the Russians have lots and lots of nuclear weapons, and they would use them, I believe. They have more than we do. They have more than we do. I mean, it's at the level, you know, as the saying used to go, where all you're doing is making the rebel bounce. But they have not thought of tactical nuclear weapons the way we have. We have tended to think of tactical nuclear weapons. Now, by the way, a tactical nuclear weapon can still be almost the size of the Hiroshima bomb. I mean, but they can be a lot smaller than that, too. We have thought of them mainly in terms of signaling and things of that kind. They've thought of it as just really heavy artillery. And so, you know, I think the NATO nations have collectively decided, and I reluctantly think that they are right, that we don't want to simply launch a war against Russia. Now, it would be very different if there are Russian attacks on NATO soil. Where I think we've made a mistake is we've bend over backwards to say we're not going to send any troops or anything like that to Ukraine. You don't, you don't have to say that. I, I, wouldn't, I don't think we should do it, but, but you don't have to say that because it's part of this is about communicating courage or rather communicating to the Russians that you're not afraid of them and communicating to Putin above all that you're not afraid of him. He, is, he likes to bluff. He is a judo player. He likes to keep other people off balance. He's a KGB veterans. So this is all about head games and manipulation. And the way to deal with him is to just make it clear, we're not afraid of you and to stare him down. And that's, I think, what the course of action should be. Uh, And in the meanwhile, lots and lots of javelins and stingers. I, I don't know that we're doing our utmost. I hope we are. I'm not entirely sure of it. I sure hope we are too. Elliot Cohen, thank you very much for your time today and helping us you know, begin to get to the truth of the matter about this mess and this horrible conflict, horrible invasion by Russia of Ukraine. Really appreciate your insight. My pleasure. Anytime, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. 
Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 